What's up, everybody? It's Matt from the Hotbox Podcast. This is part three from the Helena Cannabis Conference, the Montana Medical Growers Association. Uh, in this part, you'll be hearing from some doctors and scientists all about cannabis chemistry, how the cannabis is tested, why cannabis needs to be unscheduled. Of course, we know Marinol is Schedule 4. Why isn't the plant that it comes from? Uh, then we open it up to a full question and answer with the scientists. And uh, I think some things that come up, uh, how to keep your garden pest free, a little Department of Agriculture talk. And uh, yeah, that's that. So I uh, hope you guys are enjoying these and uh, I'll talk to you soon. I've got Noel Palmer, PhD, who you were introduced to earlier today from the lab in Bozeman. And joining us also for our panel discussion later, we have Jeff Hill. Would you like to stand up, Jeff? And Jeff is a 17-year environmental chemist out of Billings who's going to be looking at a starting lab as well. So the first thing we're going to hear today from is uh, Noel, and he's going to talk to us about cannabis chemistry. All right, so um, I would like this to be somewhat informal, so if anybody wants to stop me in the middle of my talk and ask a question, please do so, because... I think if you have a question on the tip of your tongue, we should be able to discuss it. Uh, we're going to talk about some science of cannabis today, but before we do that, I would like to introduce myself because I think it's nice for you guys to know who's talking to you about this chemistry, so you know a little bit of my background, maybe some of my credentials. Um, I'm a Denver guy. I spent a few years after high school, maybe like a lot of people, with a lot of question marks. And then I went to Idaho and Washington, which is where I did a lot of my graduate, well, I did all my graduate work there. And I have my, my doctorate in um, analytical chemistry. I actually um, did my work on soil and water analysis. That was what my doctorate program was focused on. But um, in that, my techniques that I was able to translate to cannabis chemistry were, were largely on separation, spectroscopy. A lot of the skills that in order to be uh, adequate cannabis, uh, I guess, chemist, it's very nice to have a lot of these um, skills. And so that was, that was really what I did for my work, and I, um, I worked on humic materials. These pictures at the bottom are humic acids, humic and fulvic acids, and I worked on humic and fulvic acids a lot. So that's who I am. Now we're gonna get to the fun stuff uh, with cannabis. Uh, cannabis is a single species plant, but within that species, there are quite a few varieties, and I'll put a couple pictures here to show how different some of these different varieties can be, and what I like to akin the different varieties to, or you know, we could consider cannabis as kind of like dogs. Dog is a species, you have, you know, dog is a dog, but there's a lot of different kinds of dogs, and if you put two different dogs in the same room, and you come back a couple hours later, you might have a funny looking dog, and that's essentially what's happened with cannabis. We have one species, but we've had a lot of people putting different cannabis plants together and getting a lot of very interesting varieties out of these crossbreedings. So, as a result of that, we have a very, very diverse chemical profile that we are now observing in all the different cannabis strains that we see here in Montana and anywhere where there's medicinal cannabis. Now, I'm going to introduce this molecule because this is the molecule that largely is touted when we talk about cannabis, but it's not just about this particular molecule. But this one here is delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, and the delta-9 is implies that we have a double bond at the nine position of the THC molecule. It's just, yeah, it's just one way organic chemists like to designate these things. So that's the molecule that we have been 
attributing to a lot of these medicinal effects, but it's absolutely, unquestionably, not the only one that works. I'll just mention this really quick. For those who aren't more familiar with organic chemistry or what this thing means up here, um, this is what organic chemists or just chemists in general, um, it's a short way to draw molecules. And whenever you see any of these lines change direction, that implies you have a carbon atom there. So I'll just say that this is a big, not very big, it's just an organic molecule, a bunch of carbons, a couple oxygens, and there's hydrogens in there that we don't see. But this is a common way for chemists to draw organic molecules and communicate on the same level. Now, before I get into much more, I want to just ask one question, and you guys can think about it while you look at this nice slide that I made. But cannabis has a lot of different, different parts of its actual biomass. You know, you have the stems, the stalks, everything, and you have even these nice little things called trichomes, which are very diverse in their own regard. But the question down at the bottom that I like to ask people is, where do you think, everybody can just think out, out loud in their own head, where do you think in the cannabis plant that THC is made? So, everybody think about it, come up with your answer. And this is going to bring us to the first myth. And actually, this myth is that THC is not produced by the cannabis plant at all. In fact, THCA, THC acid, is the compound, the precursor to THC, that is actually produced in the biosynthetic pathway in the cannabis plant. And this is some, I like to say it's a nerdy joke that we use in our lab because we're chemical dorks, and we think that this is funny, that everybody thinks that THC is produced by, a by the cannabis plant, when in fact, it's not. THCA or THC acid is produced by the plant, and what we get is THC as a byproduct of THC acid. And I tell people that, you know, one way to think about this is if you go to a fresh cannabis plant, and you picked off the top, and you were to eat it without heating it, without doing anything to it, not inducing any chemical change, and you ate it, and it went through your body, because it's in the THC acid form, you would observe minimal to no uh, psychoactive, um, psychotropic effect at all, because it's in the acidic form. Question from our panel. Um, is the THC acid, though, it is, is it relegated to the trichomes at that point? Correct, yes. The question is, is yes, the, all the cannabinoids, and I guess that's something I didn't put on here, but all the cannabinoids are absolutely synthesized in the trichomes. The cannabinoids do not exist in the leaf or the stem biomass. They are all in the cannabinoids. And if you find any of these cannabinoids um, on a part of the plant, it's because a trichome has fallen off and deposited itself somewhere else. Like seeds, for instance, sometimes you can detect a seed with a little THC on it. And it's not because there's THC in the seed, it's because when they harvested that seed, some trichomes probably fell on that seed, and hence you see some cannabinoids there. But it's all in the trichomes. So back to some ugly organic molecules. I just want you to understand what this THC acid means from a chemical point of view. And it means you have a carboxylic acid on the two position of the THC molecule. And I have shown you that here with our little blue arrow. That COOH is what we will call a carboxylic acid functional group. And it exists on the two position. And it's worth noting that the acidic form of THC and hence all other cannabinoids are essentially inactive in the body to the CB receptors. So we would consider the acidic form inactivated and the neutral form activated. Now this is probably my ugliest slide for organic stuff, but I, I like to show it because it gives you an idea of how cannabinoids are actually formed in the biosynthetic pathway in the plant. And at the very top of the slide, you'll see two, I don't know, funny looking 
organic molecules. One's a terpene, the other one's a result from a polyketide synthesis. And they bind together because of an enzyme in the cannabis plant to form the very first cannabinoid that is produced in the biosynthetic pathway, which is CBGA. That is the very first one that's produced. And then from CBGA, the plant has a number of different enzymes in there that are going to then in induce uh, the production of different carboxyl or different cannabinoids. And I like to think of it as an umbrella effect. You know, you start at the very top, and then as you go down, more and more different cannabinoids will be observed. And you'll get THCA, CBDA, or CBCA. And the production of these three cannabinoids is going to be directly dependent on three different unique enzymes, A, B, or C, that exist in a plant. And these are enzymes that are going to be inherent to a strain, inherent to a plant. They're not enzymes that you can induce on a plant. So if a plant does not have, for instance, enzyme B here, CBGA will not be converted to CBD in a plant at all. So these enzymes are the reason we get THC from CBGA, CBC from CBGA, and also CBD. So if you don't have the enzyme, you're not going to get the stuff. And cannabis these days is loaded with enzyme A and enzyme C, and it's a lot more rare with enzyme B. We get a lot of THC in our cannabis plants these days. We get a lot of CBC in our cannabis plants these days. But CBD, the enzyme B, is not nearly as prevalent in cannabis nowadays as it was maybe long ago. Now, I tell you that the THC acid is inactive. It doesn't bind to the receptors, so it doesn't work. But you guys might be saying, hey, but I vaporize my cannabis, I cook it in butter, and it works. And that's because that carboxylic acid functional group is actually very labile. It really likes to fall off of that molecule very, actually quite easily. And there's three different things that will induce this decarboxylation or activation. And that's going to be heat with my nice little flame there. Also, oxygen exposure will induce this decarboxylation or UV radiation can induce this decarboxylation. And so when you have the acid, uh, THC acid or all the other cannabinoids in the acid form, they're inactive. And when you decarboxylate them through one of these mechanisms and drive it off as carbon dioxide, you're going to have activated or neutralized cannabinoids. And those are the ones that are responsible for the physiological effects that we generally attribute to cannabis. Oh, oh yeah, I'll show you here. Um, yeah, I don't want to get into this part. I don't think I have a lot of time. All right, now this is, I think, my favorite slide in the entire talk that I have here because... This really gives an idea that cannabis is not a simple, the cannabinoid life is not a simple, you know, A to B route. There's a lot of different things that can happen in this cannabinoid life cycle that are good and potentially bad too. And up at the very top in the biosynthesis um, little row there, we have, you know, our three primary cannabinoids that are synthesized from CBGA. We can decarboxylate all of those through heat, oxygen exposure, or... UV radiation, and get neutralized cannabinoids that are responsible for the medicinal effects. However, what we get though is the reactions don't stop there. We can then get uh, degradation into compounds that we will generally attribute to be not so beneficial for the medicinal effects. In particular, with THC, there's two primary degradation products of THC, and they're going to be CBN and Delta-8 THC. And for a medical point of view, we don't really want to go that far. We kind of want to stop on the middle row there. We don't want to induce 
de or degradation into these other cannabinoids because that's not really what we're looking for with the medicine. Oh, okay, so then this is going to be my next question for you. I have two myths today, and the first one was that THC is not synthesized in the plant, and it's actually THCA that's synthesized in the plant, along with all other cannabinoids. But then a lot of people, um, I think there's another misconception of what are the most commonly observed cannabinoids in a cannabis plant. And the myth too, and most people think that THC, CBD, and CBN, and I show you here with this dash in between, you know, the acid and the neutral right next to each other because they're both going to exist if you have one of them. But that, the myth is that they're the most commonly observed cannabinoids in cannabis, and actually that's not true. In fact, CBG... CBC and Delta or THB are considerably more uh, concentrated in cannabis plants, especially than CBD and CBN. CBN is a degradation product, and as long as a caregiver treats their cannabis product right, as long as a person who prepares edibles does things right, you're not going to be getting a lot of the degradation products. So you shouldn't have a lot of CBN in your either plant samples or your edibles. It should exist mostly as THC. Um, so that's why CBD and C, well, that's why CBN is generally not too commonly found. And if it is, then that's a very aged sample. It's a sample somebody left out in the sun for a couple weeks, something like that. And CBD, in regards to CBD, we've essentially bred CBD out of all cannabis strains that we observe these days. Yes, sir. Can you dumb this down for us? Please, yes. I mean, really, quite frankly, when you're saying it's YZ or whatnot, I really just want to know what we need to get to. What we need to do. What I feel like we want to get to. No, this is a fair question because I. I a difficult part of the job with the science is to. Um, I want to. I want to understand how. I want to be able to explain to my patients how this works. I want to understand this compound so that I can explain it to my patients. We have we have a myriad of breakouts throughout today and tomorrow. Some of them are dealing with legislative issues. Some of them are dealing with customer service next door. This one today and the one this afternoon are more scientific panels. Um, you know, this one is going to be more discussion of analytical chemistry based on cannabis, and then the one this afternoon is going to be based on the chemistry of alternative delivery, uh, non non smokable ways. But like I said, we have a whole bunch of other sessions just like that planned throughout tomorrow and going on in the room next door that are less scientifically intensive. That might be well in, in that room. There's customer service next door right now. Yeah. Yes, sir. Well, in that regard, though, I mean, this is, it, from my point of view, this is a very challenging um, job for me because I want to be able to discuss science, this very complex science. I mean, this is not simple science at all. And I, it's really challenging for me sometimes to be able to translate this information to, you know, a large spectrum of knowledge, you know, receivers, which would be you. I mean... Some of you likely have college degrees, some of you maybe have advanced degrees, and some maybe haven't even ever taken a chemistry class. So if anybody feels that I'm saying stuff that you don't understand, I encourage you to please come and talk to me afterwards. And I'd, I'd love to sit down and talk with you maybe a little bit more at the pace that's appropriate for your knowledge so that we can, you know, get this information um, to you the best way. Um, but yeah, this is, I mean, this is, I guess my big goal with this is to show you that um, a couple things, but this chemistry is actually very complex. Yes. Um, I'm mostly taking notes so I can look this stuff up later because I have never taken organic chemistry. But real quick, what's THB? Because I've never heard of it. THB is when you have, and that's a good question. I'll show you on my next slide, actually. THB is when you have 
a propyl side chain rather than a pentyl side chain on the four position. And what that's going to be is right here. Well, let's find THB. Here's THB right there. Yeah. And as you can see, this little thing sticking off that position right there is a little shorter than the other ones. It's almost identical to THC. If you guys can see that THB looks almost exactly the same as THC, except there's a shorter side chain on that four position. THB actually binds very similarly to THC, to the CB receptors, because of this chemical similarity. But THB is very commonly found in a number of samples that I've looked at. But yeah, this slide here, oh, was there a question? I'm sorry. Yes, sir. A cannabinoid is a word that describes a general class of all of these compounds that are all similar in structure that will bind to the CD receptors in different ways, but they're all, that's a chemical class is what it is of these things that are produced by the plant in the, in the trichrome gland. But, well, THC is really the only strong psychotropic compound. But the other cannabinoids absolutely can have medicinal values, and that's actually not the scope of this talk today, but there are a lot of um, publications out there based on these other cannabinoids. So, oh, this slide, what I'm really doing is I just highlighted what I consider to be the more common. Oh, yes, I'm sorry. Yes. So if THB also binds to receptor sites, what kind of effect does it have versus THC? And this will come to a slide that I'm getting to in just a little bit, but that's actually a good question and it's still somewhat unknown from what I've read in the literature. THB, um, I have heard of some anecdotal stories of the types of ailments that it might be good for, and I don't, I'd rather, if you'd like, I'd like to talk to you about that afterwards because that's kind of a different. It actually doesn't bind as strongly as THC. I think it's two orders of magnitude less strong to the CB receptors, but it does bind. So. Is it found in most strains? No, it's not found in most strains, but it's... And from my observations, it's found a lot more commonly than CBD. So yeah, this is just a breakdown of the most common and the rarest cannabinoids that I'll observe, or that we observe in cannabis. But it doesn't stop with the cannabinoids. Yes, question? When you're talking about like degrading the composition, if you were to put something in a dehydrator that stays at a fairly cooler temperature, what does heat drying something do to the that's a good question. The question was, for those who couldn't hear it in the back, is if you use a dehydrator yes. that's kept at a relatively low temperature, are you going to induce decarboxylation? My answer is absolutely yes. You are going to, it's going to be, I akin decarboxylation to the boiling of water or the evaporation of water. Decarboxylation always <laughs> happens. It's happening no matter what, albeit very slowly at room temperature. But when you heat it up a little bit, it happens faster. And the way I can it is with boiling water. If you put a pot of boiling or a pot of water on the floor here, and it came back a month later, that water would be evaporated. Water is continuously evaporating from that pan, but it's pretty slow at room temperature. But you heat that pan up to 70 or 80 degrees Celsius, it's going to happen quite quickly. You're going to evaporate that water up quite quickly. Decarboxylation is a very similar effect. It's always happening in a fresh cannabis plant. It's instantly decarboxylating, but the effect is very, very slow. But when you heat it up, it's going to happen faster and faster and faster until you get to a temperature where you're either going to be degrading it very quickly or just straight up vaporizing it into the air. So in a dehydrator, it will happen, but I would assume it's not going to happen very quickly. Uh, this slide's just to show you that cannabis is not all about the cannabinoids. It's a very, very diverse plant as far as what it produces. And I'd like to just point out the terpenes and flavonoids are two other classes of compounds that are thought to be significantly medicinal, and they absolutely exist in cannabis, and that's why I just like to show the slide, that it's not all about the cannabinoids. There's other stuff in there, too.
what else do they exist in? What else does, I'm sorry. Like a flavonoid. A flavonoid, I, terpenes exist in everything, for instance. Flavonoids will exist in almost everything, too. But terpenes are the sticky things. I mean, they're, you know, think of sage. There's a lot of terpenes in sage. Oh. And I mean, those are the terpenes, the smelly things. You know, the, the stinky stuff. That's what your terpenes are going to be. So you're going to find them in almost any botanical product, to a certain extent. And this is, this goes back kind of to the question about um, the THV and what we know about everything. And here's a nice little cannabis leaf. And this is just, this little slide just to show how research has gone with cannabis. Is we haven't really looked at any of the other things, those hydrocarbons that aren't flavonoids, terpenes. We haven't looked at those in the, the research community. So I took that leaf off. There's been very little work done on the flavonoids. Um, in fact, I always observe a, a particular can of flavin in the work that I do, and it still has yet to be classified. I've worked with a couple different um, research groups, and this flavonoid still has not been chemically identified, but I see it in fairly high concentrations in all of my profiles. But we don't know what it is yet. We don't know what it does. The terpenoids are very interesting, but there is also limited research on the terpenoids. Those acidic cannabinoids, the ones that are produced initially, we've actually done very little work on those. There is some thought that they work on the autoimmune system, but they've been, compared to the neutral cannabinoids, way understudied. And even with the neutral cannabinoids, we've only studied a very small fraction of them to any large extent. If you go to the literature, you're going to find almost every publication is going to refer to one of these three, if not these three together, compounds. So science has a long way to go. Was that acid cannabinoids with autoimmunes? The, yes, like correct. Okay. correct. And just so I don't take up too much of the time, because there's, I know I want to let Rose and Brandon talk. Um, the terpenes here's, I just pulled a list off, um, off of a publication that I found of a number of different terpenes and some of the different medicinal effects. And so you can just, you know, breeze over this and say, wow, the terpenes have a lot of potential too. So cannabis is this amazing blend of all these different medicinal compounds, terpenes included, that can, you know, in a symbiotic relationship, help a lot of different ailments. And I'm not going to talk about any methods because I believe Rose is going to talk about that. And this is my last slide, uh, just to kind of bring a full circle of what this science can help us do. And because THC is the only psych strongly psychotropic compound found in cannabis plants, it's the one that most people can go to their living room and observe. You know, you can smoke it, vaporize it, whatever, and you're going to observe it. But all the other cannabinoids, you, you, you're not going to be able to observe them based on the immediate physiological response. So the science can help us with our batch verification, you know, help with consistency, uh, curing, preparation, dosing. Um, it's going to help us find these non-psychotropic compounds like CBD, one of the very strongly medicinal compounds that is not psychotropic that you would very likely not observe if you were to use it in your living room. You probably would just think that, you know, you might have felt some of the THC, but the anti-inflammatory effects of the CBD would very likely go unnoticed. Um, the dosing and preparation of edibles, I think, um, science, without having some chemistry to help you put some numbers on things, you're just going to, shooting in the dark as far as um, dosing and preparation, and, you know, absolutely, patient health and safety, science can, you know, help us get closer to that. And that's all I have to say um, in this entire talk, so... Um, Questions while I do a turnover? Uh, yes. One question. Um, between the three of you, there is testing available for your plants, right? And um, you do test for CBDs and Correct. stuff like that. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So I have a question. Yes, sir. 
is all of the smell of the plant coming from that specific protein or what terpene? Right. Terpenes so are what's going to induce the majority of the smell. Could you engineer a plant then that had no smell to it by taking that out, or is that an integral in the rest of the plant system? The the question. The question, or the question was, is can you take the terpenes out of a plant? And from, terpenes are going to exist in every single plant, especially because terpenes are an integral part of the biosynthetic pathway to other cannabinoids. So if you have no terpenes in your cannabis plant, you're going to have no cannabinoids. So I would say that terpenes are an integral part to a cannabis plant in regards to cannabinoid production. Um, so you're absolutely going to have them. You can't, terpenes generally have a much lower boiling point, so you can burn them off in edibles. But as far as the plant's concerned, I don't think that's going to be maybe time. I can address something about the terpenes also, is that the terpenes are what provide the unique scent to each of your strains. They provide the lemon, the grapefruit, the lavender, the blueberry, the blackberry smells that your plants have. And so they do, they also provide a, an aesthetic medicinal value. And although there are obviously a skunk smell that you may want to breed out of your plant, I think that maybe through crossbreeding you could minimize those. But, you know, because obviously we found a way to accent other ones that we found pleasant. So I, I don't say it's impossible to, I, I would say, sure, you can eliminate it, but um, they do provide positive aspects to your cannabis as well. Um, so I was going to talk about how we test. Uh, what, what is the magic we're doing in our little labs? Let me give you an, a number. Um, <clears throat> the methods of analysis and their pros and cons. Oh, sorry. Now, enter. All right. enter. <laughs> um, so, the three main methods of analytical methodology, we'll talk as many syllables as we can right now. Um, the first one I want to talk about is gas chromatography, and uh, short nomenclature we would say GC or GCMS, which is uh, mass spectrometry, uh, which can measure the molecular weight of different compounds. It's a so, and the second, the second one I want to talk about is high-performance liquid chromatography, which we call HPLC. There's a newer method called UPLC, ultra high-performance liquid chromatography. It goes faster and uses less solvent. Um, it's, I don't think it's in either of our budgets, but you know it's out there if you hear about it. Uh, and then a third uh, possibility is thin-layer chromatography, which is called TLC. Or in some cases, it can be called HPTLC, and that's a slightly different, um, more special method uh, that can give you a little more details. So first I want to talk about gas chromatography. Um, the pros for gas chromatography are, uh, it's very good for thermally stable compounds, and it's a very fast analysis. I mean, as far as persons running a lab, we can run more samples faster. Uh, so in the laboratory industry, you know, people like gas chromatography. The cons are that a high injector temperature means that the unstable compounds, like the carbox, the acid, acidic forms of the cannabinoids, will break down before they can be characterized in the instrument. So you can, they'll be converted to the neutral form. So you can't tell the difference between how many acidic ones and how, how much acidic THC you have and how much 
neutral THC you have in your preparation or your plant or it's all going to come out as THC. None of it will come out as THC acid. And the same will happen with all your other cannabinoids. So while if you're trying to characterize a plant that has, that you're going to smoke or vaporize or heat anyway, you're probably going to get a representative answer um, using gas chromatography. However, if you're trying to characterize an edible product, something that's not going to be smoked or heated, um, you're not going to get a representative answer because it will not give you an honest description of the acid forms of the cannabinoids. How does, oh, so here we go. And how does this apply to cannabis? It converts the cannabinoids, the acidic forms, to active forms. Um, so it is not appropriate for edibles or drinks, sodas, teas, anything like that, that you're not going to smoke or, um, or, or vaporize. Sorry. The second kind of methodology I want to talk about is HPLC, um, and that is what Noel and I both use. Now, to say that we both use the same thing, we both use the same instrument. Um, we don't really know if our actual methodologies are the same. We've developed them independently, and we certainly plan on validating those between each other. Um, they're cook an egg, um, but we're gonna we're gonna figure that out. It's excellent technology for identifying and quantifying cannabinoids and terpenes and flavonoids, all these different groups. Terpenes and flavonoids are something you're going to hear more often when discussing herbal supplements. Um, if you're buying St. John's wort or bilberry or any kind of herbal supplement like that, um, oftentimes they'll be discussing flavonoids as far as their beneficial um, characteristics. HPLC is commonly used in many industries for botanical analysis. Um, I worked for a few years in the nutritional supplement industry and we use that exclusively for analyzing um, the active ingredients in herbal extracts to make sure that they are not fake. Um, in every, every plant has characteristic chemicals that belong to that plant and that plant only. Uh, St. John's wort has two, hypericin and hyperforin. Cannabis has cannabidiol, tetrahydrocannabinol, and many other cannabinoids. I'm just going to name those two. There are certain marker compounds that are unique to a plant and even to a portion of a plant. And so if you're testing any kind of herbal supplement, you can see whether it actually does contain the herbs that you're, that you're hoping for. Um, so HPLC is just being converted, we're just using that to test another herb when we're testing cannabis. Now cannabinoids, which are the compounds exclusive to cannabis, in the past THC has been bred to be the predominant cannabinoid. It overshadows all the other cannabinoids in the cannabis that we're testing now, um, for better or worse. I think that we will find, and we hope to find, that the future of cannabis is growers and chemists working together to boost the expression of the other cannabinoids, the ones that have real medicinal value and not psychoactive value. Um, I think that we're finding that, that those cannabinoids, the more research that is done, the more we're finding that they are really good for many places in your body, and the, place, and the reason that, or the, the fact that they've discovered this endocannabinoid system in the first place is just... Uh, an amazing concept that, that this cannabis is just built for us and we can use it and it is good for our bodies and it's meant to be in there. But the THC 
is just one small component of that. And there are many other chemicals in there that are good for us. The quantity of each compound is what makes the difference between hemp grown for fiber and a medicinally viable strain. All the hemp plants, all the cannabis plants, contain these cannabinoids at some level, trace level or very large levels, very high levels. But uh, what makes the difference between a hemp plant that you're growing for fiber and uh, a grapefruit or a blackberry or a lavender strain is the levels of these different cannabinoids. And crossbreeding between different um, strains is what is going to change the different levels of that and also uh, your growing your growing procedures. With legalization, um, this is the first time. This is the first time that we've been able to actually have chemists working with growers to to find out what we have in real life, what our real life results are from our growing. It's always been anecdotal, experiential information in the past. You know, I grew something; it felt this way, but we don't have any solid numbers. And now, working with a laboratory, you can take this final strain and you can give it to a chemist and you can get some solid numbers on what you've grown and see if you can repeat that and do it consistently. Um, and it, and it's, it's a, the, the advancement of cannabis science is just going to shoot forward now that we have chemists who can legally test this for you. Because we find this subject fascinating you know, as chemists. And we think that you as growers do amazing work. But this is the first time we've been able to openly work together. And hopefully in the future we'll be able to work you know, through interstate work. Uh, there's other laboratories in other states. There's doctors in other states that want to do studies. And um, they all want us to work together, but right now we can't. Um, but this is the first time that we have been able to to join this movement and to learn as much as we can about cannabis. So I do definitely think that technology is just going to streak forwards from where it has been for the past 50 years. The third process I want to talk about is thin layer chromatography, um, also known as TLC. And that is a process where compounds are visually separated on a piece of paper or a plate. Um, it's theoretically similar to GC and HPLC, whereas it separates the compounds out and you can see them individually, but it's, we'll call it cruder. Where and why is it used? In the nutritional supplement industry, they use it for the identity of dried herbal extracts. Um, in the herbal supplement industry, if you're making a, a St. John's wort pill, it is filled with a St. John's wort extract, which is made from hopefully St. John's wort. Most of these <laughs> extracts are uh, powders purchased from China, and they need to be validated that they are actually the, the plant that they say they are before they can be used. In, and this is new FDA regulations. They didn't used to have to. <laughs> um, so the, <laughs> one of the common ways they use, uh, they do that to identify these herbal extracts is using, is using TLC. Um, and because each plant has these unique compounds, uh, you know, cannabis has the cannabinoids, and uh, like I discussed about the St. John's Ward, it has certain compounds that are unique to it. Um, they will show up on this slide, almost like, like you see on a, a DNA screen on, you know, crime lamb law and order or something, you know, the little dots on the, 
on the paper, and there will be a unique fingerprint for each uh, for each compound that will be representative of that herb. So it is very good for identity to make sure that there are no foreign objects in your extract because a brown powder is a brown powder. Um, unlike GC and HPLC, TLC alone is not quantitative. It cannot be quantitative. And it merely proves that I think you already know that you're growing cannabis. So um, it's not, it's, there, are, there are people selling test kits that are for TLC, but I don't think, and, and, I, and I don't want you to be misled into thinking that they will tell you how much THC or how much CBD is in your cannabis. It really is just telling you that all the compounds that are normally in cannabis are in your cannabis, and I think you already knew that. And that's it. G-Bag. Well, we were talking about that, and I'm and I and I'm not discounting GC at all. Um, I think there are, there are derivatization processes, and I think that I would definitely like to see uh, how that works out. You know, I think that that it's possible. I just don't think that it's been developed yet, and I'd like to see it done successfully. Um, there is he, this, John Jeff is opening, sorry, a lab in uh, Billings, and I think we'd all like to be, the three of us would like to get together and do some method validation um, using different instrumentation. And, yes, sorry. Do you ever see the use of any of your testing methods for driving under the influence? No. Um, well, they use, they, they'll use HPLC for that, yes, but they, um, when they, they're looking for different compounds, they're using those methodologies to find the metabolites of THC, what what your body turns the THC into. Oh, okay. It's going to say, you have THC, but you have a couple other branches on that molecule that your body adds as it's digesting and processing the THC. Um, so right now, they, they mostly they look for those compounds when they're looking to see whether you've been exposed to Cannabis. And they can't differentiate between the discarded ones that are connected to something trashy or the active ones? Not as far as I know. Okay. I think, and I'm not, don't quote me on this, but, but you know what, what I say to law enforcement? I say, remove this from the Schedule 1, move it to Schedule 4, where we can do research on that sort of thing. We would love to help you out in this case, you know? But people, there has been tons of research done on alcohol and um, impairment. And that's because alcohol and researchers are readily available to do those things. I think there should be studies done on cannabis impairment. We will all find out what happens, you know. But let's find out, and let's just not say, "Yes, you smoked marijuana a week ago, and you have it in your system. How can that possibly impair you?" So these these tests can't be done by researchers until it's not Schedule One anymore. Um, kind of more related to what you were saying about the DUI thing. I, in my understanding at this point, like they're having to go back to the old like touch your nose, touch your toes, follow a straight line thing. Like, they have no thing. Other, like they have nothing else that is going to be legally feasible because mm -hmm. doing a urine test on you doesn't definitively prove that you're intoxicated at the time of your encounter with law right. enforcement. I think they want to prove that you're impaired. So not just so that you're intoxicated. Yeah. 
Yeah. I love your t-shirt. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I would love to get my uh, Well, we, we weren't officially here to promote our businesses. I would say I, I've seen lab tests in the state um, coming down between $100 to $200 per strain, depending on which lab you get, how many strains you can get in at one time, and how busy they are. But it's a pretty it's a pretty reasonable rate. And how long is the process take? That is a strain to you. How long would you expect it to? Around a week. Yes, sir. Is there a better time to uh, bring the product in after harvest? Um, I like to test a representative sample of what you're selling to your customer. So if, if you cure it to its final state, that's where I like to to analyze it because that, that represents what you're selling. And, and take a bud from the middle of your plant. Don't just take the top because the top is always going to be your best bud unless you've got it too close to light and burn it or something. <laughs> if you test the top, you're not getting a representative sample. Right. Yes. How much of a sample do you need for this? Half a gram. Half a gram. Half a gram. Yeah. Um, another yeah. so Do you think, you know, with testing, um, you know, it looks good, you know, it puts it, you know, where we're measuring, and, and of course collecting that data is always good. And it seems like it also then creates a potential feedback loop of, of we can create standardization because we know what the numbers are. So then you have people growing maybe to meet a standard. And do you think that there's anything lost through, I mean, it would be good to know you can deliver a predictable and reliable you know, measured strain. But do you think it's possible, too, then, that we get so hung up on it being predictable that we lose some of that, um, the thing that can happen with plants, expressing things on their own? You Not know, if we have everybody in their dog growing it, the diversity is going to be so great. So, so how does, we're I mean, narrow it down. So, I mean, I love data for data's sake, but there's also people, there's also the argument, how does this fit in with the pharmaceuticalization of cannabis? Um, and how, how can it be kept, you know, in that well, I have a couple opinions there. Um, first of all, I would say that the more, uh, the, the better you are as a grower of getting a consistent product cannabinoid-wise, I think then you can work on developing more aesthetic qualities. You know, you can work on, on a better scent, a better flavor on your, on your cannabis. Um, I think that, that you know, could potentially leave you open to more creative outputs. Um, secondly, the pharmaceuticalization is a, is a topic of which everyone has an opinion, including myself. And um, having worked in um, close to the pharmaceutical industry, I can tell you that, that uh, and, and every, we've found this out as we've been trying to classify our cannabis programs in this state. Everyone wants to relate it to alcohol or pharmaceuticals or beer or gambling or Prostitution, I don't know, whatever they're trying to link it to next. Um, but the, I find that the cannabis doesn't fit that mold. It does not fit our FDA mold in this country. Our pharmaceutical industry bases its medications on a single compound at a time, and, and which is where Marinol came from. They were like, oh, well, we can fix this. We'll just make Marinol. And what we found out with cannabis and with the discovery of the endocannabinoid system is that we need all those compounds. Apparently, there is some synergetic work going on with the whole plant that provides a better response. And it will never 
fit into the pharmaceutical FDA mold. And that, I think, is a comfort. It, it, that's one comfort to us. Of course, you know, if we go the whole big tobacco way, we're all on our own here. But you know, I don't think it will ever fit in the pharmaceutical mold the way they want it to, in that sense. Brandy, I, okay, yes, the sir. reason I have my hand up, I think if someone is really concerned about the dosage of whatever the cannabinoid they get the best benefit of, that your lab would be able to tell them, because if you only need a half a gram, I can mm -hmm. send you a sample in a week, I can know the strength of every cannabinoid in my... Some cannabinoids. We can well, test for right, some cannabinoids. Right, yeah. The ones that we know um, what they're doing so The, one, right, the ones right. that, that we're allowed to test for, right. that we're allowed to identify. Um, the, the other thing is that people, if people are certainly considering uh, focusing on a particular cannabinoid, is where edibles would come in. Uh, those can be, uh, the future of that would be to be able to manipulate the different levels of cannabinoids, separate them out, and apply them. Yes? Whereas I've also heard that um, through your you guys' labs, I don't know who collaboratively or what, um, that CBDs have been isolated in plants in Montana. Yes, there have yes. been a couple of high yes. CBD strains located. Yes, yeah. it's a, it's a rare and bizarre thing yes. to see come out of your instrument. But yes, we have. Uh, I think Noel and I each found one, and, uh, and Misty is one. But there, yes. so I guess that makes three. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm just curious if each different uh, plant has a different cannabinoid profile and different cannabinoid receptors are more more or less responsive to different cannabinoid profiles. Wouldn't it be convenient for a pharmaceutical company to figure out which cannabinoid profiles affect which injuries and then just make uh, targeted specific uh, cannabinoid profiles that are possibly very effective for those actual symptoms or, or illnesses? I think that's a ways down the line. Just because there are so many to, cannabinoids. We need to convince them first to stop <laughs> prescribing opiates and open their mind up to this other option. Yeah. Right. And then we can and then we can so start we figuring out which cannabis plants do which things. And, and henceforth, where the Schedule 1 uh, problem comes into, pr into play is that, you know, Marinol scheduled, what, four, three or four? Why, why can't, you know, the plant that it comes from, why can't, why can't that be a four? You know, where the rest of us can study it and learn these things. That, you know, people who don't like it will learn things too. But, oh lordy. What's the average number that you've been seeing for an indoor grow between the cities here What's the range? What, what range? What's your low you want to talk about that now? Yeah, a little bit. I've observed cannabis as low as 1%, and I've seen it up to just over 20%. I mean, the, the 1% would be, you know, the leaves from the very bottom, the fan leaves or something like that, which some people use for edibles and stuff like that, and so they want to figure out what's in that, you know, because they're being utilitarian about their stuff. So I've seen numbers range. I'd, I'd say I, my average that I calculated was around 12% for THC, and just THC. But, um, I mean, regarding all the other cannabinoids, like THCV, you know, I've seen a number of strains um, above 1%. CBG is always there. In one to three to four percent, um, CBC is in every strain too, in the single percent ranges. So I mean, they're they're always there. So yeah, but that's generally the range. I mean, you, yeah, I mean, a grower can make or ruin a plant. You know, I mean, a, a seed that says it's going to produce a strain that's twenty percent doesn't mean anything if the grower doesn't do it right. So it's it's all very grower dependent. All right, um, we got a, a little bit more on the presentation here to get through, and then we can open it up for poll questions uh, for. Oh, sorry. Sorry. 
And then we can open up uh, full questions for everybody here. Don't know how far we're close to keep this thing. So we've heard, we've heard a whole lot today about different cannabis science. Some of it people might have understood. Some of it might have been over your head. It's a really, really hard subject. I mean, you have to start with basic chemistry and work your way all the way up to understanding the many different things that go into creating these compounds and then how they affect the human body. And right now, as scientists, they don't know that much information. Now, as long as it's a Schedule One narcotic, they can't do the research properly. And that's where we can come in as patients and caregivers around the state. We can be doing all sorts of things to support the science. The first thing we all need to understand before I get any further is the basic scientific method. Nothing can support the scientific method unless we understand it. You ask a question, you do your research, you construct your hypothesis. Right now the hypothesis is that all these different cannabinoids together, cannabinoids, um, together are going to create a positive medical medicinal effect for all sorts of different ailments. And we've observed through trial and error of people smoking all around the state or vaporizing or ingesting other types of ways, many, many positive effects. Now we really need to start supporting the science. These guys are gonna be doing the lab analysis to find out what's in the strains, but we have to tell them whether or not the strains we're using are doing any positive effect on which patients and which conditions. And this starts completely with keeping all of your information. Keep records of everything. Write down everything that you do as a caregiver. First of all, collect data in your garden. What is your grow medium? Are you using soil? Are you doing hydroponic? Are you aeroponic? What kind of nutrients do you use? How often do you give the nutrients to your plants? What's your light spectrum? Are you using 600 waters or 1,000 waters or HPS or MH? Uh, are you using carbon dioxide? What about pest control? Do you use neem oil or do you spray sulfur on your plants? Is tobacco smoked in your house, around your plants? A lot of people don't realize, but if you smoke cigarettes in your garden, that smoke sticks to your trichomes, and I guarantee you, I can tell you, when I smoke bud, whether or not it was in a garden where people smoke cigarettes around it, that comes through in the taste. This is another all uh, outside alien thing that's been introduced into your medicine, into your cannabis, which as many of you know, it's been proven that secondhand smoke causes cancer. Well, we probably can't prove that secondhand smoke attaches to your weed and then causes cancer, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, certainly not, it's certainly not something that we want to do if we can avoid it. Essentially what I'm saying, we need to identify all of our variables and remain consistent. If we grow differently each time, change our medium, change how we nutrient, uh, change how we water, we're gonna get a completely different result. And obviously we want different things for different plants, but if we don't remain consistent with at least some of what we do, we're never gonna be able to understand how to construct the best plant, let alone what's gonna be in it. Physical analysis is important too. This is something all of us can do in the home without a lab. What colors appear in your buds? What shape does it take? How dense are they? How consistent is your cure? And by that I mean, you know, if you have a pound of medicine, is some of it wet and some of it dry, or did you get the whole thing cured properly? Are your trichomes developed, and what colors are they? Uh, most people can get a microscope for just a few hundred dollars, and I realize that's a really big expense, but if you're a, if you're a pretty big caregiver, I would eventually invest in one. A microscope like that will cost you $500. You can see trichomes almost that close. 
with a microscope like that. You can see them close enough that you can tell the color inside the trichome heads. You can tell if it's cloudy, if it's clear, if it's amber. All of this information we can be writing down at home. Most importantly, a smoke test, if applicable. And I say if applicable because not everybody smokes their medicine. We're going to be talking later today about all the different alternative deliveries that we have. But either way, we need to be able to test for those patients who do smoke. Well, how did it affect them? What was the taste and the smell? How harsh or smooth was it to inhale? What was the level of smoke expansion in the lungs? Did it make you cough a whole lot? Did, was it hard to smoke? Was it easy to smoke? Did you taste fertilizer in there? And going on with the patient analysis, make sure your patient tells you what they're treating, what their symptoms are, how or if they're alleviated, and how much. How did they ingest the cannabis? What dosage did they need to achieve medical relief? How potent was that strain? How long did it take for the medicine to take effect? How long did it last? We can essentially find out all of this information and compile all of it. And most importantly, what condition was treated and how well did the medicine bring relief to which specific symptoms? Essentially, once we do all of this research, then we can start making our own hypothesis. Let's say we have 10 patients that really like my bubblegum strain, and all 10 of these patients happen to have cerebral palsy. And then we get a lab test that sees that this bubblegum strain has a really, really high level of some new cannabinoid that we have yet to really do a lot of research on. Well, now we can make a hypothesis that that cannabinoid might be having a really good effect on MS patients, and so on and so forth. If we do the science and the research at home, it will make supporting what the people do in the lab so much easier. And then when it comes down to the time that we bring this to the legislator to make sure we keep medical marijuana, when we bring this to the federal government to make sure they can take it down from Schedule One narcotic, we have all the information necessary backed up and behind us. So if you've learned anything today, despite all of the science you've heard, it's keep good records of everything you're doing. How you grow, how the plant turns out, who it treats, well, not necessarily who it treats, but what conditions it treats and how well it treated it. And with that information, we can combine it with the analytical science and we can really, really make some strides forward in uh, cannabis chemistry. So at this point in time, I'm gonna open it up to questions that you have for either of our chemists and Jeff, if you'd like to join them and help answer any questions uh, you're more than welcome. I'll just come around with the mic to make this easy. Frankly, and all of this is just speculatory at this point, this is something that I've observed, having some patients and some friends that smoke cigarettes in their garden with the plants, everyone that I've observed doing that, I can taste it on their medicine. Now, if you step outside of your room completely, 
or if it's maybe even outside of the house, I think you'd be fine. It's just a matter of, remember, when you, when you see a cigarette, you see the smoke curling off of it, you see it exhaling, it's thick, it's in the air. We talk about trichomes, they're all over the plant. If you've got a good plant, it's covered in resin. That is your active ingredient. The point of those trichomes, as far as the plant goes, they're natural defenses. They're you know, sticky resin to keep all sorts of bad things from happening in the plant. And that sticky resin also functions as a, a pollen, I believe, catching pollen and things like that. So it'll catch smoke, and it'll catch any particulates in the room. to address that just a minute too is that I, when you, you should be small children you must wash your hands after you smoke tobacco so that would also relate if you're working with medicinal products wash your hands like Beth is saying I would treat your grow area like you would treat a food service area um, no pets should be allowed you should wash your hands when you work in there um, keep contamination as low as possible. Don't don't go in your garden outside and then go into your grow <coughs> area. You're going to bring uh, microscopic pests with you. Um, the the future of this industry in this state is going to be uh, leaning toward the highest quality of a grow area as you could keep as as confined and quarantined as you can keep it. Um, will help you in the future. Uh, you only need to be wiped out by mites once and by moldy once to learn that, that you know, the, the consequences of a casual grow area and bringing visitors into your grow area and animals or smoke or anything like that is, is uh, the impact can be devastating. And the fact that you're making medicine for people, um, for sick people, uh, should uh, impact, should be in the back of your mind all the time when you're handling your medicine. I would say that the best advice I could give for everyone is to treat your grow as if it were a science lab, if that's at all possible. The most scientific of operations strives to control all variables except for the one that you're testing. If you can have control of all variables, what enters and exits that room, the temperature, the humidity, the light, every variable, the more concise control you have over that, the better quality medicine you're going to produce. And the more concise control you have, the less chances you'll have of contamination. I'm just wondering, as far as edibles go, are there any compounds that that would enhance the the um, effectiveness of the of the cannabinoid? Uh, you know, for instance, if you combine psilocybin and chocolate, you get a much better effect. Okay. So is there something that I can combine while I'm, you know, creating an edible with the, the cannabis that would really enhance the properties that I'm looking for? Um, I, I would say, first of all, that, that edibles, and we'll, we'll cover this in the next uh, breakout session when we talk about edibles, um, is that uh, those edibles are metabolized, the cannabinoids are metabolized completely differently uh, than they are when you smoke. And um, how you take your me your metabols, uh will directly impact the, the effect they will have on you. And there are ways to do it effectively and there are ways that you can, you know, you'll take an edible and you won't feel anything. Or you'll make an edible and it will not be effective. And these are definitely things we're going to address in the next breakout. And, uh,
with, with, with edibles, when they go through your stomach, they go through your intestines, and then they're passed along to your liver. When they go to your liver, they're converted to the 11-hydroxy. The 11-hydroxy THC molecule in particular just has a little piece sticking off it with an OH group. It's actually a stronger binding agent to your body than THC, Delta 9 THC alone. So in fact, when you actually eat something and it passes through your liver, you're actually converting it to a more, constant, or a more potent form of THC rather than when you smoke it, it just goes straight into the blood from your lungs. So in fact, you're kind of doing that. You're kind of, I guess, already preparing it in a more potent way when you eat it because it goes through your liver and it's converted to a more potent form. And that's, uh, that's one reason why I infer that some people when they take edibles and they get a lot, they actually have near, um, near psychedelic experiences because you're actually converting you know, already a psychoactive compound into a more potent psychoactive compound. And if you have a large enough dose, you're gonna be inducing a very, very, very strong medical effect. Difference in numbers between hydroponic and soil? I have, yes. Yes. As far as the as far as the cannabinoid presence? Yeah, cannabinoids. Have you observed one to be higher than the other on average? Um can I buy your microphone? This is um, this is this is something that it kind of raises a little bit of I don't know, issue with growers in particular, so I want everybody to just take what I say with a grain of salt. Um, and what <laughs> What I like to tell, well, what I tell growers that they are, from a chemist's point of view, is you guys are organic synthetic chemists. You guys are synthesizing one particular compound through the medium of the plant. So, I mean, that, that's your goal, is to synthesize that. And so, you know, as Brandon was saying, you know, controlling every parameter is somewhat integral in doing that. You know, when you're an organic synthetic chemist, you watch every parameter absolutely, you know, temperatures, what you have very, very meticulously. And so in that regard, the strongest cannabis that I've seen has not been soil-derived. It's actually been people who have gone through, and if you want to call it synthetic, if you want to call it non-organic, whatever you want to see, but the strongest cannabis that I've tested for THC, if you want to use it as a reference cannabinoid, in the highest concentration has been non-soil um, synthetic, whatever you want to call it. But there's absolute differences. I don't think you can really resolve them through our basic profile tests. I think that's something that, you know, you have to listen to the grower and, you know, you trust your caregiver on how they're going to grow or in that regard, but I think the strongest chemist, or the strongest cannabis that I've looked at and tested has been the growers who break it down into, you know, being a very controlled grow operation where they, you know, because soil, soil growing is a little bit more of a, you know, you have a mishmash of stuff and you don't really control all the parameters as, um, as, I guess, tightly as you would with maybe something like, a, you know, a hydroponic system. So that's just my observation. I, anybody who grows organically in soil, I think you're great. <laughs> Are you saying like increasing the heat in the room where you're drying to make it dry faster? Yeah. I can try. Um, I don't have any chemistry to prove what I think a lot of people would say, but I've worked with a lot of clients who say that um, quickly cured cannabis that's kind of rush cured generally doesn't taste as good and doesn't have um, the same kind of um, I don't know just smoothness that you know slower cured cannabis does have. What I have um, read, though, is that cannabis, you know, that is cured for a long period of time will actually, you will generate a chemical transformation with some of the complex starches. They'll break down into simpler sugars, and so for a long cured cannabis sample, you likely will have something that tastes a little bit better, maybe it's a little bit less harsh, and I think that's the chemical reaction that you actually observe over a very long, you know, month period of time, months, 
of curing. But as far as rushing your, your, your curing, I don't know any chemical data that would support whether or not it's a good or bad thing, but I've empirically heard that patients generally seem to like cannabis that you know, has a little bit of a slower cure. <coughs> I was just wondering if the fumes from the carotene would go into the cannabis. Yes. I would think that to, to some extent, yeah. Like, like we said, those, those resin glands, they'll catch anything in the air. If it's a dust particle, if it's tobacco smoke, if it's pollen, if it's, you know, burned kerosene, all of that stuff will make its way. And it's... It, it, yeah, it is. It, it is. It's very much like flypaper. Anything floating around that room will eventually stick to it. So it's just a matter of, you know, as far as the kerosene goes, frankly, I wouldn't put a big kerosene anything right next to your right next to your medicine to dry it. Because as he said, it'll dry it out fast, and most of you have probably already observed exactly what he said. Quick-dried medicine tastes harsher and doesn't have as much flavor. So, you know, it wouldn't be recommended, but also keep in mind when most people if they're not cooking it into medibles, if they're smoking it, 99% of the time you're hitting it with butane when you light it anyway. So a little bit of kerosene on there probably isn't. But again, again, we're striving for we're striving for the most pure possible thing. So yeah, if you're burning kerosene, you're going to get some some uh, carbaryl exhaust is going to stick to your plants. I would assume with kerosene because it doesn't, you know, it's not a very hot burn. I would also assume it's, it's not as clean of a burn as something like, you know, natural gas where you don't have a lot of byproducts, you know. I, I would think that you'd be more likely to have, you know, less than just carbon dioxide being driven off from the incineration of the kerosene. So, yeah, I think the likelihood of having stuff stick would be greater. More particulate. Don't let anybody, anybody into your garden. And don't go into other people's gardens unless you plan on changing your clothes and taking a shower in between. This is, and, and I knock on wood, I have, I have yet to find one, you know, suffer from one of the infestations that other people in the state have been having problems with it. But, and I, I firmly believe it's because I refuse to let anyone else into my garden. And my, my few employees that are in there are not allowed to view anybody else's garden. And it, it, for me, I feel like that is the best way to prevent contamination. Chris? Yeah, and don't don't trade clones. You know, that's where they're getting, apparently it's gone from one grow to four grows in Billings, and uh, the concern is that it's going because clones are getting traded amongst gardens. Yeah, if you're going to pick up clones from somebody, make sure you trust your source, if you're willing to do that anymore these days, because definitely a lot of the state is getting contaminated. You know, two years ago there were a few growers and then they were nice and they started giving out their clones. And I know that's how a lot of people in the state got started. But if we continue to do it that way, we will just spread stuff around. So one of the things you can do is if you have a high-powered microscope, you can look at clones underneath to see if there's any small things moving around on there. But there's, there's apparently there's a new pest that's 30 times smaller than the spider mite here in Montana. So if you don't have a high-powered microscope, I wouldn't get clones from anywhere. You will kill anything that gets submerged in neem oil. I guarantee that. When, when, yeah, when you when you neem a plant, you create such a low concentration of the oil. And you may anybody in here who neems their plants may have noticed, like at the beginning or the end of your your sprayer, if you ever cough up a little bit of chunks 
of neem and they land on the plants, anywhere where that you know, concentrated neem oil touches the plant will burn up like it's got nitrogen burn and it'll just wither and die. So I would not, and, and neem also doesn't kill pests. Neem oil, neem oil does not fix your garden if you have pests. Neem oil is a natural preventative way from getting pests to latch onto your plants because the sticky, uh, glistening oil coats the leaves and then they can't attach into the leaf. But if you've already got them there, it's not going to kill them. What, what about like something like fluoride? I know that is a, you know it's not necessarily recommended for uh, food grade things, and yet the like UC Davis and uh, the EPA studies on it show that it has the they put it in the lowest to- possible toxicity category possible. I mean they were pouring down rats' throats and things. I mean, frankly, you know, I use ladybugs, but I don't know I don't know about the the bug that you're talking about, so I can't give an accurate. Uh, you know, like, like we talked about earlier today, there's there's no one way to fry an egg. There's no one way to get rid of pests. There's a whole bunch of different ones. That might be a good one. I know ladybugs work fairly well, but they're not 100%. Nothing's 100%. All I can say is the best thing to do is don't let anybody into your garden you don't know, and you can probably prevent getting pests. And then the Department of Agriculture is involved in this issue, and they are, the kind of questions you're raising are near and dear to their hearts. Uh, so they are going to actually be speaking to a lot of these things tomorrow during their session, just so everybody knows. I think as soon as uh, Noel and I uh, and, and Jeff start pesticide screening, um, we'll be able to help growers out to see whether um, we can, whether there's any residue left on your plants in the long run if you have to, to dip them when you get clones. Um, I'm going to say off the top of my head, it's, it's probably okay to dip a clone when you first get it. It's going to be a month before you, or two months before you smoke anything. There's no flowers on there now. Um, but I'm not a grower. But I do want to test people's plants for pesticides to see if there is damageable residue in the long run. And I think we're working on that. We just haven't quite reached it yet. Uh, but that's definitely going to be a valuable service. And I don't want people that, that use pesticides to be afraid to get their plants tested. I want, I want you to get your plants tested to see if there's any residue left that's going to hurt your patients. And I think that's what we all want to know. Do the natural pesticides show up in the testing? Uh, I, I mean, natural per se, like tobacco uh, juice, tobacco juice, uh, alcohol, uh, the ginger, the different types of things that are used. I, I couldn't say that for sure. Generally, when we're testing for pesticides, we're testing for a class of pesticides. We're testing for a specific compounds. Uh, we're not. We we can't. We'd have to test for ginger oils. We'd have to test for a tobacco resin to see if there was something on there. Um, CSI is ruining labs for us in some ways where everyone thinks we just put it in a microwave oven and this whole book comes out the other end with an answer on everything you ever wanted to know, but that's not, that's not, we actually test four specific things that can give you an answer. We can't just put it in there and it gives us back a story. So, um, no is the short answer. Um, but we can, we, we're certainly looking into that. Um, uh, I know it's, it's where the industry needs to go, and we need to do that to protect our patients. And, and there, there's sometimes there is only going to be one way to fight. You know, there, there may only be a chemical way to fight this mite. 
and we may have to, to, you know, we have to eradicate it in this state, or we will be in big trouble. Sorry. Have you got any any photos of this particular mite you can show us? Uh, no, but I've 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 Googled hemp russet mite, and uh, I've uh, it, it's very small. It looks like nitrogen burn uh, on your plants. You can't actually see the mite. It's so small. They're very, very, yes. Um, and, uh, I've just been informed that tomorrow when the Department of Agriculture comes to give their presentation on pesticides, one of the people who's been severely affected by this mite is going to bring in some sample material from their garden to show people. So if you're going to be here for the convention tomorrow, you'll be able to, I don't know if they've gotten, I guess, microscope pictures? Or? Yeah, I hope they're not going to bring sample yeah. pictures. <laughs> that, that, that's not what I meant, they're going to, they're going to bring, they're going to bring pictures and Yeah. Okay, so Chris says they're bringing photos, not mics, but that's good. Um, question over here? Yeah, if you uh, shut off your ventilation and crank your CO2 way up for a while, will that kill any mites? Yeah, that works. I, I have heard that. Yeah, I've heard about it. It works. I've used it. It works. I think we're going to have to deal with Suffocating your mics with your CO2 system. This is certainly something we can discuss with the Department of Agriculture when they come here. I mean, they're science geeks too. They're they're into figuring this stuff out.